Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, the Ford government has introduced legislation to limit wage increases for public sector workers, including teachers and nurses. Also, should the Premier consider canceling the contract for the 407? And Republican senators have broken ranks with Donald Trump on the proposed tariffs on Mexico, saying they're considering ways to stop his efforts to impose those tariffs. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Ontario government has uh, introduced legislation to limit wage increases for public sector workers. Now, that includes teachers and nurses and actually about a million different people around the province uh, to limit the uh, increases or any increases, if there are going to be any increases, at about 1%. Uh, to suggest that uh, people have not uh, cozied up to this, I think, would be a massive understatement. Uh, Warren Smokey Thomas is the president of OPSU. He joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to give us uh, his read on this. Uh, Smokey, thanks for the time. Uh, were, were you surprised by this? Uh, no, not really. Um, the government had these uh, public sector consultations. They were a sham. Uh, they were led by a constitutional lawyer they hired from Bay Street in Toronto, so you could pretty much figure out what they were up to. And uh, we put in many, we put in, uh, I mean, I whacked them around pretty good in the consultation part, but we actually put in some detailed submissions on every sector and how to, the government could save money, how the government can save money on collective bargaining by doing sectoral bargaining, for example, all these sorts of things. None of they just apparently fell on deaf ears, and they've chosen to go this route of uh, passing a law to say you can't get any more than a 1% raise. So for the public out there, it's, it is about free collective bargaining. And that, that it's the same principle here as him ripping up that beer store framework agreement. I mean, you've got the Canadian American Bar Association supporting both the American Chamber of Commerce, Canadian Chamber of Commerce. On, you can't do that. It undermines the rule of law. Free collective bargaining is enshrined, like, you know, freedom of association, which includes bargaining in the union, is in the Charter of Rights of, you know, Canada's Charter of Rights. So the Liberals tried this in the education sector with Bill 115, as it was called a few years ago. They lost. And uh, Ford's trying the same thing with a different kind of wrinkle. Uh, we've got constitutional lawyers, too, so our folks like our chances of uh, having it declared uh, illegal, but that takes time. So, But in the meantime, he's just this is just another chill on democracy. Like this guy, I mean, I, and I, I, Bill, I just, I'm trying to figure him out. He stands for, you know, free enterprise and freedom of the people and everything else. And then he acts like a dictator, you know, ripping up a contract that's a bona fide contract, really puts a chill on business. Going after the average worker's charter rights is, is just sends a, a very chilling signal. And I, I, I'm, I'm at a loss as to figure him out, except that I, here's what I think. That Dean French guy is his chief of staff. He runs everything. You've got... Carolyn Mulroney, right, you know, Solicitor General, she should be going, you ought not do this. Where, where's her voice? Where's his cabinet minister to stand up to him? You know, if this cabinet minister, cabinet, group of cabinet ministers can't stand up to this guy, maybe it's time for some new cabinet ministers that will. But I don't know how Doug Ford's going to do that. And I predict that if anybody did stand up to him or did speak out against, uh, he'd toss him out of cabinet. The minister responsible is his Peter Bethlin Faldi. I watched his, yeah, he's, uh, he's from the Treasury Board, yeah. Treasury Board, yeah. So for the people, that, uh, you know, for your listeners, he's the guy that controls all the money, and he's the guy that controls labor relations. 
I watched his interview yesterday. He was having a hard time spitting those words out. Well, let me ask you about that, you know. Smokey, because I, I, I watched that interview as well. Uh, and uh, and we've had Mr. Ben Lavey on the on the program before, yeah. so it, it's it's a very important position, Treasury Board, as you mentioned, with immense responsibilities. Yeah. But there was one quote there that just jumped out at me, and I said, I got to get Smokey to talk about this. He says, "This is really good news for our public sector workers because we are protecting jobs today." Yeah, but that's that's not true. It, it, taking how can taking away your charter rights be good, right? For starters, but they're not saving jobs. They ran on their his platform was. Not one frontline job will be cut. Well, we're losing frontline jobs every day of the week. Every day of the week. And Bethlehem and Falvey can stand up and say this is about saving jobs, but they're not saving frontline jobs. They're not laying off managers. They bought some out with bio packages, but they're not. I mean, there's way too many bosses in the public service, for starters. They can start there. We put forward ideas to Bethlehem and Falvey, many of our ideas. I've met him a few times. He actually seems like a decent human being, you know, and... Some people on the left might get mad at me for saying that about a Tory, but there's some good people in that party, and he's one of them. But, he, you know, there the, the changes to autism. We've got hundreds of workers, members in OPSU that are autism specialists. Well, they all got layoff notices, and a bunch of them are gone already. Mm-hmm. They're not replacing frontline workers who do things like, you know, creating the birth certificates, death certificates, uh, doing, you know, on the counters when you go in to deal with a government agency. They're they're not being filled. So he's talking to you know he's trying to he's trying to dress up something to make it look like good news. Well, yeah. Listen, I've ta- I've talked to those people too. I just had a very emotional discussion, as a matter of fact, with a couple of people that are teaching assistants here in the Hamilton area. Yeah. Uh, those are the people that help special needs uh, students, etc., and and you know try to help out in the classroom. They play an integral role. Uh, and they they were, and they've been doing this for quite a long time, apparently, a number of years. Uh, they're both of them concerned now that they're not going to have a job at the end of this month, that they're not going to be called back in September because there's just not enough money uh, from no. the, the education fund right now. Uh, yeah, and, we, and, and that's got to have huge ramifications. Yeah, we, we represent right now, we just had an education union support staff workers union join or merge, you know, affiliate with us. So we've got about little over 6,000 workers who work right in the classrooms. And they're all like, am I going to be renewed? And the, those folks in the classroom that support kids with, uh, you know, with a variety of special needs and, and need assistance and support, if they're gone, those, those classrooms will be just totally disrupted. And there are threats of uh, fairly substantial numbers of layoffs as the school boards try and grapple with the cuts. So, you know, for a government that says they're for the people, well, I don't know, you know, what people they're for just exactly. Well, there's a I couple of things here, 1%. Smokey. Let me ask you about this, because yeah. uh, quite aside from the, the philosophical thing, because I know I'm going to get calls and emails, I always yeah. do when we have these conversations, saying, oh, come on, these are fat cat teachers, they get the whole summer off, they make all kinds of money, public service workers are overpaid. They, uh, you've heard all these things, and they're stereotypes, yeah. and, and obviously yeah. some governments love to play on that. Now, my understanding is that the average public sector wage, average, is about 64000 bucks, uh, which is not bad, but it's not great. Uh, and the average increase over the last number of years has been 1.5%. So it's not as if you guys are, are breaking the bank for the government. No, no. We took several years of zeros under the liberals, right, under their uh, fiscal restraint. Yeah, no. So there, there, well, the problem with, with this capping thing is employers in the public sector do need to address wage discrepancies. There's lots of occupations that, in, if you work in the government, you, you you won't stay. 
you'll get a little experience and you'll jump because you can make five, five, six, seven, eight dollars an hour or more working in the private sector. So there are, you know, parts of the government that have serious recruitment and retention problems. If you're in that average salary, though, that takes in all the management ranks. Yeah, that's what else, I mean. You know, so so the workers' average salary is probably about fifteen grand a year less. And there are some there are some well paid workers in the public service, but they've got four years of university plus another two years getting a PhD, getting a doctoral. Like, do you know what I mean? Like they they went to university four years to become a lab tech, uh, you know, genetic specialist, harm reduction specialist. Uh, you know, mechanics and, and people that work, they call it like, these are jobs that in the private sector, they, you know, and a lot of them would pay more, but they like what they do. They believe in the public service and, and they used to like the stability of the public service, but for the last 10 years and now in particular, it's very unstable. I predict they'll have more trouble, uh, with recruitment and retention. But I could throw in one other point. Doug Ford created his fiscal crisis. The liberals left him a mess. I, I couldn't agree more. They left him a horrible fiscal mess. But he made it worse. He gave $3.8 billion in tax breaks to the rich, the 1%, and corporations. They did not need that. You know, they there's even if you tax them a little more, they're still going to be rich. You know what I mean? Like So he created a fiscal problem for himself. Now he's taking it off the backs of kids with autism, kids in the classroom, the public sector workers people who work in developmental services. And there's a lot of people that work in the public sector are not well paid. They have very difficult demanding jobs. There's violence in the workplace. They, so, and they, they put up with a lot. And they do it because they love what they do, and they're good, honest, hardworking people who don't deserve to have this guy treating the way he's treating couple of things here. We only got a couple of minutes left, and, and you, you've mentioned some of the shorter history here, Smokey, and it's, I think it's very germane to this discussion. Uh, in the deepest days of the recession back in 2009, which let's not forget was the worst recession we had had in about 40 or 50 yeah. years, uh, they tried this, and, and the court said, okay, yeah, this is a dire circumstance here. So, it, But later on, when the McGuinney government tried to impose this, the court shut them down. And, and it wasn't just as if, hey, there was public opinion, of course, against this. They actually went to court, and the court said, you cannot do that. It's, it is against the charter, and, the, and as you mentioned, the collective bargaining. Uh, I don't see that there's a financial crisis here uh, that, that uh, the premier's uh, alluding to here. So I got to wonder, I mean, what, when they rip up contracts like this or when they put arbitrary ceilings into things like this, uh, you know, they're, they're flirting with the law. And if the if courts come back and say you can't do this, uh, you know, where does that leave us? I mean, where's, well, the, where, where's this all going? You mentioned that there could be a charter challenge on this. No, there will be. My, if, even if other unions don't do it, my union will do one. But I think we're all going to throw in together and do it together, like put the best case forward. Well, here's what happened. And the liberals did it in the education sector, and it was ruled uh, unlawful. Well, how do you unscramble the egg? So we, you know, we ended up in uh, settlement discussions for about uh, I don't know, almost a year, and then they had to pay out. So they had to pay out to the workers. They had to get like a lump sum payment, which would have been equal to some sort of a raise. Yeah. And and but it's a black eye on government for doing it. So he's got lawyers that are thinking, you know, like. Uh, uh, you know, we can do this if we go take this angle, but you're right. He cannot, and I'm absolutely convinced he cannot prove financial hardship because when you're given tax breaks to risk, like he's going to, I predict that he's going to look so bad on this and he's putting a chill on business and I am not anti-business. I honest to goodness, I am not, you know, 90, 90% of jobs in Ontario and across Canada are in small business, small and medium sized business. 
and this guy's not going to make life better for them. Like, he just is not. And the private sector, I mean, I talk to people in the private sector who are, who are non-union, and, and in industries during the hardest of times, they were getting 2% raises, and government workers were taking zero. So, And I get, you know, you're right about that public opinion and all that stuff, but still, uh, fair is fair, and if they're coming for us, who are they coming for next? That's what I really would like every worker in this province to think about. What shell are they going to put on your work? The business where you work, is it going to survive? How is it, you know, are they going to prosper? And we want business to prosper. And I don't want Doug Ford to make mistakes because when they make mistakes, people get hurt. Right? Yeah, but here's the right. And, and I understand that Ford's got some support. I get that. He won the election and he's the premier. He's got a majority government. But but even people, I don't, if you're the strongest Doug Ford supporter, there are consequences to the actions that governments take. And we've already seen an example. This isn't, hey, this might happen. I mean, you know, after he tore up those contracts, the green energy contracts, after he got elected, about three months later, remember, he tried to cut a deal off Hydro One with a California yep. company, and yep. they basically t- said, get lost, because we don't trust you. They said, you throw, you tear contracts up arbitrarily, we don't want to do business with you. And that's just one example of a multi-million dollar company that said they don't want to invest in Ontario. How many more are going to start reacting like this if he keeps ripping up contracts? Yeah, Free trade will, won't mean a darn thing. It'll be him that kills their economy, not free trade. Right? So. Well, so therein lies part of the problem here, that there are going to be some, some, some ramifications. There's going to be some pushback. And I'm not talking about from the population. I'm talking about from business. Oh, yeah. Oh, people with deep pockets that can make or break you. And, and that's that's not an understatement, right? Those uh, And those taking them beer companies on, he's also flirting with, uh, you know, that, that there's a free trade agreement in place. They're not Canadian companies or outside the country. Like, he, he just, I don't know who's, well, that Dean Ford guy advised him, but he's getting bad advice, and his cabinet ministers need to find their collective voice and stand up and say, enough is enough, right? Like, Come on, now, let's settle down, let's be more thoughtful here, right, and think things through uh, before we go making announcements that turn the world upside down and get us into all kinds of trouble. Well, bottom line here is there are going to be some contract negotiations coming up pretty shortly. This is actually right. going to sour the, I would think, the atmosphere in that room when you guys get across the table from each other. Yeah, I know. We're, we're, the education sector is up, like I say. We yeah. got, there's a council for bargaining there. So, yeah, we don't anticipate uh, it going very well. But, but, you know, if he'd have just left it alone, left it up to the employer, we're not, we're, we're not dumb people. We're mature. These contracts are mature. If the employer sits there and they give you disclosure and say, look, here's the money we got to work with, guess what? Unions work with them, and maybe you don't get a raise this time. Or maybe you keep pace with inflation or somewhere near. Like, he, there was absolutely no need for him to wade in on this, except I believe because the teachers are in bargaining right now. He's a, he doesn't like the teachers because of their relationship with the liberals in the past. And for him, for this guy, it is personal. And if he just left us alone, We've bargained through the Harris years. We've bargained through you know, the 15 years of the Liberals. We've bargained through uh, Bob Ray. The unions can just bargain through and, and come up with an, an agreement that the workers will ratify, the employers you know reasonably happy with, everybody's reasonably happy with it. But when you start to Im- Im- impose you know, things like this, uh, then he's, he is sour in the table, and it makes it harder for management to come to the table and, and bargain, frankly. Smokey Thomas, president of OPSU. Uh, obviously, it's going to be kind of a raucous time over the next few months, Smokey. I'm sure we'll stay in touch. Thanks for this today. Oh, thank you, Bill. Appreciate it. That's, uh, 
Uh, just well, the dark cloud you see on the horizon is the t- the negotiations with a number of these public sector employees and the government. Uh, if this well, it will move through. That's a majority government, so they're going to get this done. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Highway to Hell, uh, aka Highway 407. Uh, yeah, that's the toll highway, and it's uh, been the bane of a lot of people's existence. Uh, interesting, though, uh, about the debate that's been going on, and this kind of ties in with what we talked about in the last segment of the show. Uh, the Ford government is, uh, as they say, putting everything on the table when it comes to trying to re- eradicate this deficit and get back to fiscal responsibility. Those are their words, anyway. And uh, the other day, the premier mused that maybe he was going to rip up the 407 contract, too, just like he did with the beer store contract. Uh, easier said than done when I start talking to legal experts about this. Uh, let's bring Harry Kitchen into the conversation. Harry's a professor emeritus at Trent University, uh, and we've had many conversations over the years about the 407, the good, bad, and the ugly of it. Harry, good to have you on the program again. Thanks so much uh, for the time. Good morning. Uh, let me get right this to the top of this and to the, the the core issue here. Can they even do this? I mean, you know, every well, Dalton McGinney promised he was going to do this. Uh, he came back a few months later and said, I- "Our lawyers have looked at it. This thing is airtight. We can't do anything about it." Uh, uh, well, uh, you know what? I don't think I can answer that question. You need one of your legal experts. I think it would be very, very difficult to do it, from what I know, and it would probably be extremely costly. But uh, you know what? I'm not a legal. Uh, don't have the legal knowledge on the contract to know whether it's even possible and what it would cost. I think it, it's 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 also difficult once you sign a contract. If you start ripping up contracts, I mean, and we've heard the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and a number of business groups say this in the last few days. You got to be awfully careful. You start ripping up contracts. What's it mean for people who want to do business here? I mean, are they going to be afraid that they sign some deal and the government will walk in and say nope? We're terminating that. We're done. It's not going to happen. Uh, I, I don't know what kind of environment it creates. But, of course, that's all over and above whether it should have been done in the first place. But that's, I suppose, another issue. Well, yeah. I mean, just for those who may not know the history, uh, this is a highway that was built back in the early 1990s. Uh, and it was at, right off the get-go, we were told it was going to be a toll highway. But uh, Bob Ray was the premier, of course, in, in the initial stages of this. That's right. And I had Bob on the show and uh, as, when he was premier, and he said, we're going to charge the toll, but as soon as the road is paid for, we're going to take the toll off. Now, I know he got some pushback from his own party. He said, no, no, you should keep the, the revenue coming, and we can put it into affordable housing or something like that. But they never got to that point because they lost the next election. And along comes Mike Harris, and he wants to sell off assets. And, uh, well, as, as, well, you pick it up from there. Uh, he wanted to sell off assets, and you know, on one side, it's if you get the right price for the asset, it's not not a big time issue. I mean, what's happened here is clearly the price they got for it is was a lot less than what the road has turned out to be valued. I mean, when you look at the uh, what you should charge for an asset when you sell the general, I think simple rule to say is you know let's take a look at net future incomes over maybe fifty years, discount them back to current day values, uh, and uh, net future revenues. That's revenue you get minus costs and discount them back to current days, and that works on a present value calculation of what this asset's worth. And if you get that exact price, then it doesn't matter whether you keep it or you don't keep it. It may matter what you do with the money if you get it up front. I mean, maybe you put it into a fund and then withdraw so much per year from it. I think what the government was when anxious to do was just to spend it on something else at the time. But it's clear that 407 has become far more popular as a highway than I think they ever anticipated, and therefore the revenues are far higher than they ever expected. It's a cash cow, really, isn't it? Yeah, oh yeah. So now it's easy to say, hey, they got a bad deal. Well, what happened if nobody used the highway from the beginning and revenues were way down? The province would be sitting there and say, boy, did we ever get a good deal on that? 
So, it, you know, it's all about forecasting how much growth is going to be in transportation, what your revenues are going to be. And, and unfortunately, it's not easy to calculate that off into the future. Um, and what apparently has happened is that they, I mean, it's miscalculated on the low side quite dramatically. Yeah, $3.1 billion they sold it for, and the estimated value, net worth of it right now is estimated at about $30 billion. Exactly. Yeah, and, I mean, and, and you're right. I mean, you, you don't necessarily know, but the whole purpose of that highway at that time was to try to alleviate some of the gridlock that was going on on the 400 series highways and the Queen Elizabeth Way, and that's only gotten worse over the last 15 or 20 years. And, and so as a result, even people that may not have on a philosophical level agreed with the toll highway, they're using it now because they've got to get from point A to point B. Well, that, you know, and that's right, Bill. And there's an interesting study that was done a number of years ago. It was done basically in the U.S. I mean, as you know, because I've talked to you before, I'm a big proponent on these major roads of charging tolls to use the roads. So yeah. I never think they should be free because there's no such thing as a free road. Somebody's got to pay for it. And the easiest way, as far as I'm concerned, is to say those who use the road are those who pay for it. If you don't direct, charge direct users, you're getting it out of money from other people who don't use the road. So I don't even subscribe to the notion that it should be given back free, which was part of some of the, some of the argument here. Mm-hmm. But there's an interesting thing that happened in the U.S. A few years ago, uh, there was a, a study done. It was uh, this guy, economist from the University of Toronto and a couple from the U.S. did this um, paper. And it, they tried to take a look at if you, can you alleviate... Uh, highway congestion by expanding the, n- the number of lanes or basically building another road? And the answer was no. You build more roads, people use it more often. So you're not going to get rid of your congestion by simply expanding roads. What you have to do is say to the people, listen, there's a price for, ch- for driving on the road. There's a charge that you're going to have to pay. You want to use the road, you pay for it. And prices in those cases tend to work. Uh, they have had a much better success at trying to control traffic congestion than just expanding the amount of, of highways you've got. I, I travel the road from time to time, uh, and what I've noticed over the years is, is a, a, a substantial increase in commercial traffic on that road, uh, right. which, again, is that's the cost of doing business, and it maybe is a little easier for those people, I would think, Harry, because, I mean, okay, that's, that's a, a cost of business. They can include that in the cost of, of whatever the product is and, and recoup at least or cover that cost anyway. Well, that's right, and I'm also uh, a, a user of that road because my kids and grandkids all lived in Kitchener, Woodstock, and I've got family in Hamilton and area. And I use the road from Peterborough when I go because 401 is just too congested. Yeah. I have noticed the same thing. You get into a lot of congestion now on 407, and you do get into a lot more truck traffic. Uh, and, um, you know, it's it, those people are obviously saying, you know, hey, I'm willing to pay the price to use the road. Um, and uh, uh, certainly traffic volume hasn't gone down on that road over the last uh, 15 years. In fact, it's increased quite dramatically, I think. Uh, well, I can still recall one of the first times I think I used that road was uh, maybe 20, 25 years ago, whatever it was, and I had to go to Markham. Uh, and, and you could have played ball hockey on two of the lanes. I mean, there's just hardly anybody on the road. I had the same experience traveling in it early on. Yeah. And and now it's just it's just crazy. I mean, yeah. it's 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 almost as busy, not quite as busy as the 401. There's that one section. I'm sure you're aware of this since you travel all the way up to, to Kitchener and Woodstock. Uh, just where the uh, the 407 intersects with the 401, oh, yeah. and and yeah. boy, you you're driving along in the 407, you see those poor sons of guns that are in the 401 because they're in gridlock. I mean, they're not even moving in know, both directions. I mean, and what it does, it causes a person like me, you know, I could pull off, for example, an anecdotal story, I suppose, I can pull off 401, head down through Milton Kitchener to get to Woodstock. It doesn't cost me anything in that section. I, I take a look at the traffic and I say, you know what, this is crazy. I'm going right to 403 through Hamilton and on up to Woodstock. 
makes it a lot easier. So we're willing to pay the price, I guess, given the congestion. Well, given given the political climate that we have right now, and this is a government that says they want to cut costs, uh, I, I I agree with you. I mean, until we've actually seen the contract, we don't know what's in there. That's right. I, I know you and I have talked in the past about some of the elements of the contract that we do know about. For instance, the 99-year lease on this thing. And I don't know what they were thinking or what they were smoking when they decided on that. Yeah. Uh, or the fact that, obviously, the maintenance costs and, and the fact that, you know, as Ontario drivers now, if we're defaulting on tickets or whatever, we right. uh, uh, you know we, we can't get our license renewed, of course, if we don't pay the, the, the 407 fees. That's right. So they got a sweetheart deal from that standpoint, let alone whether you know the cost was the, the, the right number or whatever the case might be. Boy, they threw a lot of value-added stuff into this deal. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, you and I would have loved to have been the ones on the receiving yeah. contract. And so would anybody else. No, I agree. So do we go for more controlled highways to more toll highways then and, and you know if governments are going to be penny wise about this sort of thing uh do they look at stuff like this and say look at from now on any highway we built because there's still some talk now about a another mid-peninsula highway the from uh, fort erie all the way to hamilton airport and uh, connecting with the 400 series highways do you do you make that a toll road well you know if you ask me yes but uh, will they do it i don't know um I mean, there's talk now there's a major highway going to Nova Scotia. They're talking about putting tolls on it, and there's been a big fight against it. And uh, so it's a, it's a, toll roads have been opposed by a lot of people. But it's interesting. If you take a look at uh, when I did a study, and I think it was uh, did one in 2007 and 2013 on, on um, charging for roads uh, around the GTA, and we, I did a, the second one with a colleague from UBC. Uh, we did. We took a look at some of the surveys. Now, I, I don't know how scientific these these surveys were, but they basically went and asked people: Do you think people should pay for the use of the road if they're driving on it, or do you think it should be free? And we found a dramatic difference in the response from 2007 to 2013. The the uh, there were a lot more people who were receptive to paying tolls in 2013 than in 2007. So there had been a change in attitude. I mean, there still is some resistance to tolls, but it's usually knee-jerk resistance. When you explain to people, you know, you've got to finance it somehow. There are other options. Who should pay for it? Should you pay for it if you're going to use it? Or should some guy who doesn't use the road at all have to pay for it as well? And when you, when you pose the question to people, most of them say, well, you know, when you put it that way, I guess, yeah, you should probably ask those who use it to pay for it. And, um, and, and we, we found in that, when you looked at these surveys, that there was a, an increasing interest over that period of saying, yes, if we use the road, we should pay for it. So I think attitudes are changing towards uh, the notion of tolls, um, and I think that's fortunate. Now, maybe we're getting off topic here because we're talking about 407, but um, I think there's a, there's a move towards uh, an interest in in, in charging uh, for highways in a different way. I Listen, I'm surprised at the changing attitude we've had with a number of things. Just around the same time we were having this debate uh, back in the mid-1990s about the 407 and whether or not the government should have sold it, etc., and all the other elements that we've talked about. Uh, remember, there's one of the other campaign promises Mike Harris made that election was uh, he was going to kill photo radar. Yeah. Uh, and, and he did, obviously, uh, much to the chagrin of, of police and a number of other people. And now here we are in 2019, and I'm hearing an awful lot of people saying, you know what, bring it back. Well, I it, think we should have had it. Yeah, I, it never should have gone as far as no, I'm concerned. I mean, it, it, it's another simple case of price. You want to speed, you pay the price. Yeah. You know, um, and I, I don't think it should have been taken away. And I was actually surprised that they took it away because I thought that's the kind of policy that 
Harris and his boys would have liked. Yeah, except that oftentimes people that want to get elected uh, and want to stay popular uh, try to do populist things. I'm going to kill that thing because, you know, people complained about it. Well, the only people that complained were the ones that got caught because they were speeding. Yeah, exactly. yeah. yeah well, that's true. Uh, but the same situation here. I I, I share your, uh, your your view here that I, I'm getting a sense from an awful lot of people that I've talked to, toll highways, yeah, sure, why not? You know, if you don't want to pay the toll, don't go on the highway. And I know people that will do that. You know, well, they I, want I to go too. up north every weekend. They'll, they'll come down the 410 in Brampton, but they'll go right all down to the 403, and if it's congested, it's congested, but they don't have to pay. Well, I know people from here who go around Toronto and won't take 407. Yeah. They'll sit for an extra hour on 401. Well, that's fair enough. But that's a, a that's a consumer choice, isn't it? Exactly. They're not forced into it, and uh, um, it's a choice. And it, it's not the only highway to get from point A to point B. And I, I'm wondering why the government doesn't even entertain that idea. Is it because they're going to get pushed back and they don't want it to Well, they're already losing popularity points, I guess, with some of the other stuff they've done? Yeah, yeah it certainly appears that way. So to get back to our original question, and I, I understand that I, I'm not a lawyer, you're not a lawyer, so we don't really know what the contractual situation is. But what we do know is that there's, a, at least on, on one level, Harry, uh, if you start tearing contracts up, there are going to be consequences. Now, you may have to go to court and fight this, but right. like the beer store contract, yep. uh, the green energy contracts, which, by the way, is a great example of what you talked about at the beginning of our conversation, because that already already had some some ramifications because that killed that energy deal between Hydro One and that California consortium. They right. they basically said, get lost. We don't trust you because you'll probably rip up the contract if we make a deal. No, that's right. I mean, that's a, it's a dangerous precedent to set, particularly when you you got elected on the basis we're open for business. Well, yeah. I mean, are you attracting business when you just say, hey, you know, we, we may or may not uh, decide to renege on the contract at some point in the future. That's, that's not really going to encourage people to say, hey, yeah. let's go to Ontario. No, no, not at all. And the other shoe that's going to drop here is, like you say, with the beer store. This is a, a these are international consortiums that own this company. It's not just a couple of. It's not just the guys over by Pearson Airport, you know, in the Molson factory. Yeah, uh, and and they're not going to just go quietly into that good night and said, oh, okay, I guess we're not going to make money anymore. Well, you know, I, I mean, the beer store contract is a crazy thing. I mean, who really cares? I mean, what's this fixation on beer? I mean, I don't understand it. And anyway, I, I, I don't know why they're so fixated on beer and what they should do with it. Forget about it. Instead of paying a high price, I mean, we've already got a, a lot of corner stores or supermarkets now, I guess, not corner stores. And I mean, I don't know what the, the problem with that was anyway. Well, this uh, group that owns, the Spanish-based group that owns the 407, the Grupo Ferrovia, uh, is making money hand over fist on this thing right now, and they got a pretty sweet deal. And and there's what another sixty years or something left on the lease. Well, it, it was a ninety. I guess it was a ninety nine year lease. Yeah. yeah. So they're not just going to walk away and said, "Oh, okay, guys, for the Ontario government doesn't want to play ball with us anymore." Well, too bad, so sad. We'll try to find something else. They're going. Well, f- you know, you think about it, you rip up the contract, and the kind of settlement you're going to have to give is presumably going to be based on the expected revenue over the uh, ongoing length of the contract. Whew. That could be pretty high. Well, yeah, and and what do you do with it then? I mean, to go back to your point about revenue generation, uh, if, in fact, the government is crazy enough to do that, and the penalty, I assume, is going to be substantial to, to get out mm-hmm. of this contract, do they just make it a free road then and, and lose that revenue, or do they just... Well, they couldn't have... Uh, well, I, you know, what they, I don't know what they do, but I, I, my view would be they couldn't afford to. I mean, they're going to have to keep the tolls on there to pay whatever price. I mean, it could be that the kind of... If they rip the contract up in their settlement, I can't imagine the other guys walking away with anything less or wanting anything less than what they would expect to get over the remainder of the contract. 
Well, and there that, that that raises another question then. So if what's the end game here? What's the province going to do? This is not going to be if I can use a phrase that I think the premier has thrown at us from time to time. This is not for the people oh, because no. he may take ownership, but it's going to cost a ton of money in penalties if he breaks the contract. That's He's right. going to have to keep the tolls on the road to try to generate the revenue to get some of that money back. So you and I as consumers are no further ahead. Exactly. That's the point. Yeah, I don't see that. I don't know what the advantage is. I mean, you may may get upset about the way the prices are going, upset about the contract. But I mean, to try and get out of it, you're going to pay. A, it's conceivable you're going to pay a penalty or a price that's going to be exactly what we're paying now. We're no further ahead. So it's great to just throw that out there because that creates a headline and gets people talking and say, "Yeah, he's going to do that. Yeah, that highway's a ripoff." Uh, it's going to be a ripoff no matter what, simply because that's the cost. And you know, they're not going to come back and say, "Okay, it's only going to be ten cents a kilometer from here on in." You just you just can't do that. That's not practical. Well, it is interesting. I mean, I think the general perception, and it's certainly a perception uh, I've heard from many people who use it, people use that road, complain about the, the charge of tolls. And I remember looking a few years ago at the toll rates across North America in different states and, and cities uh, in the U.S., and that toll rate is high in the uh, greater Toronto area. There's no question. I think when we looked at it, we found it was the highest by a reasonable amount on a per kilometer per mile basis of any other tolls. So it, it, it is a, it's a high rate, which has caused a lot of people to complain about it. And people, they'll say, I used the highway and I got ripped off and so on, and all the other things that, they, that uh, bother them about paying these, the, the price to, to, to drive. And so it does become an easy target for a governor to say, look, there's a whole lot of criticism out there about this, and let's uh, sort that out. Let's just say we're going to rip up the contract. Well, politically, I guess you could say we're going to rip up the contract. But what are the uh, uh, cost implications? And I can't see them being, I can't see them being, being cheap. But uh, and I'm not sure it's any better off. Yeah, and and that ship has already sailed. I mean, you can't reduce that price. I mean, because obviously there's there's a cost involved in everything that they're doing here right now. So it's it, I, I, again, I guess it's, it got people talking, and it's it's a nice little headline, and maybe it's a little bit of the art of deflection, which is not the first time we've seen that in politics because of some of the heat he's taken for some of the other decisions. But right. I, I don't see this happening anytime soon. I don't either. I mean, I'm, I, it's a popular move now, and I suspect it's. I don't imagine it'll go very far. Harry, always a pleasure. Uh, thanks so much for the time today. I, I always get like to get your input into this. And uh, okay, when when you. they change their mind and go ahead and do this anyway, you and I will talk again, I'm sure. Yeah, okay. <laughs> right, all right. Thanks again. Harry Kitchen, of course, Professor Emeritus at Trent University. Hey, they built the highway right up to Peterborough for him, I guess. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. There's uh, trouble brewing once again south of the border of the political scene. And no, it's got nothing to do with the impeachment or the Mueller trial or the Mueller report, rather, uh, it's got to do with yeah tariffs once again. Republican senators have actually broken ranks from Trump when it comes to the Mexican tariffs that Trump is threatening now, saying that they are considering ways to stop his efforts to impose them. Now, this is a bit of a shock to an awful lot of people because people like Mitch McConnell and, and Lindsey Graham and a bunch of other folks, in the, Republicans, that is, in the Senate, have pretty much capitulated almost anything that Trump wanted over the last couple of years. But they seem to be drawing the line in the sand here. Joining us to talk about this is Ian Lee from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. And uh, Ian, first of all, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us today. Uh, my pleasure, Bill. And, and just before we get into this very important subject, I just want to celebrate you people for honoring D-Day. This is an extraordinarily important date, and our young people don't know far, they simply know far too little 
uh, about the uh, how critical it was uh, to the free world uh, in 1944-45. I, I obviously am biased because my late father was in the RAF in 1943 to 45 and participated in that effort to liberate Europe uh, from the Nazis and um, it and I've been to D-Day locations oh my god five six seven times in the last 30 years it's just it's a very very moving place to visit and uh, it's very easily accessible because it's only about three hours from Paris and there's direct flights from Canada to Paris so I just, that's just a shout out to our young people to you know try and get over there one day to 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 go to the to the monuments and the places uh, at uh, on at Normandy uh, uh, where the D Day invasion took place. Well, and we've talked about that, uh, and you know, and, and Google it, do something, read about this. I mean, yes, uh, yes there, there were fourteen thousand Canadian troops attacked Juno Beach that day. A third of them died that day. I mean, they the were, sacrifices they, they made. They were slaughtered. Yeah because they had no defenses. They were coming in off the boats, and the Germans were in fortified positions, and they were just mowing them down with machine guns. And it, it's just amazing that anyone survived, and it's amazing that they were able to overcome them. They overcame them with superior numbers, and, and General Eisenhower's genius at the strategic planning. But it's, it's a very moving sight to go there, and the French, bless them, have not allowed any development to occur along there. Not a house, not a condo, not a, nothing. So all you see is sand and the deteriorating structures, the Nazi structures of 1945. And they haven't renovated them or repaired them. They've just left it as is. And it's very desolate, very desolate, just sand and dunes and, and, and uh, grass and, you know, I mean, crab, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the kind of grass that grows near the ocean. And um, it's very, uh, it's very very moving. And then, of course, the Commonwealth graves are, are nearby, right mm-hmm. behind, as well as the U.S. military grave sites. Well, you've you've traveled extensively and actually done some work in Europe over the years too, and I, and, yeah. and you could comment, I think, about the gratitude that uh, that the French, uh, the the Dutch, and yes. so many others have, uh, not just for the Allied troops, but for Canadian troops who who did yes. so much work over there Especially during the war. Especially in the Netherlands, it's, yeah. it's just extraordinary. I've been to every one of these countries, and uh, they're they're still extremely uh, grateful. What is it, seventy five years later? Seventy five years. I mean, it's astonishing. You know, when I was growing up as a kid. I was born in 1953, so that even though I thought of the World War II as a very distant war, it was only eight years before I was born. And, uh, and we lived in Europe in NATO bases because my father was a pilot. He joined the RCAF when he emigrated to Canada. And, uh, and it was visible. Pic- I mean, I have pictures of my father took of various cities across Germany and France, well, especially Germany, uh, where even 10, 15 years, 20 years after the war, there were still bombed-out buildings that had never been rebuilt because they were rebuilding. They took them a long time to rebuild Europe, notwithstanding the Marshall Plan. So billions and billions and billions were poured into the, into the reconstruction of Europe because of the brilliance, I think, of the Americans to uh, rebuild and including giving money to their former enemies called the Germans and the Italians to rebuild their infrastructure. Absolutely. Uh, anyway, it's a, it's a fascinating story, and we'll it delve is. into that a little bit more. Okay, let's uh, let's let's turn the page here uh, down to Washington to the Beltway, where uh, even Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham are starting to buck yes. the trend here and say, "Mr. President, don't go there." Yes, I I do believe that this is very. Sh- I want to sharply, and I'm not as you know, I'm not here to defend Donald Trump at all. I'm not here to attack him. I'm just here to interpret him. But I think that the the tariffs on Mexico, the proposed tariffs on Mexico, are very uh, different kettle of fish from the tariffs that he imposed on China. There was a grudging, perhaps, but nonetheless acceptance of the, um, uh, the tariffs imposed on China by Donald Trump. In this instance, there is huge pushback coming from not only the Republican Party, which is historically a free trade party, uh, but the people in the Senate and the House are pushing back, but the business community, which is very, also very supportive of, of a free trade agenda, 
and they've been they've been grumbling about the tariffs, but there is a full scale revolt uh, going on in Washington over the proposed tariffs on Mexico. And I and I think the reason there's two separate reasons, and they're both legitimate. Uh, one is that a lot of people don't see Mexico as an enemy. <laughs> they see China as a threat. They don't see Mexico as a threat other than, yes, there's illegal individuals coming across the border, but they don't see it as a, as a national threat, as a country threat like China. So that, that's, that's one reason. Why are we beating up on our allies and, uh, when we should be you know, focusing on our, our enemies, if you will? And then the second one, of course, is the incredible integration that has occurred since 1993 between the Mexican economy, the Canadian economy, and the U.S. economy. People don't, they just say, oh yeah, the trade went up, and it did, it went up phenomenally. And people think, oh well, that's nice. But what happened was the global, the supply chains between the three countries were optimized. So one part of the car is made in Mexico, one part of the car is made in Canada, one part's made in the States. This is where I'm, I'm so, so opposed to Jerry Diaz, uh, his arguments about putting tariffs on Mexico. The, the Unifor president, you know, it's a, he's oblivious, at least, uh, you know, superficially oblivious. I'm sure he knows it underneath, but uh, quietly in the back, you know, he would admit it privately. But he seems oblivious to the fact that it's not that you know the Mexicans build one kind of car and the Canadians build another kind of a car. The a- the average car in North America that's built, North America meaning Mexico, Canada, U.S., the bits and pieces in the car go back and forth across the border seven times before the car is finished. So you can't talk about a Canadian car, you cannot talk about an American car, or a Mexican car, if we mean by that it's 100% built and made in one country. There is no such creature. All cars made in the last 15 years in North America that are made in North America are hybrid cars, if I can call it that, and I'm not talking environment. Hybrid meaning part of the car was made in Canada, part was made in Mexico, part was made in the U.S. And so when you start putting tariffs on, you're upsetting the supply chain because they were based those supply chains evolved because of the uh, you know the number crunchers and the finance guys or people persons and and the accountants and and optimizing the location they decided you know it's cheaper to build the transmission in this this country at this plant versus that plant in another country and now you come along and put the tariffs in and it completely changes all the economics and now you got to resource every or when i say everything you got to reconfigure the value chain and it's really expensive, and it's really, it, it's going, of course it can be done. Uh, there's no question it can be done. But it's going to be massively disruptive and very inefficient, and it's not going to lead to lower costs for consumers. So the business community, which is closely aligned with the Republicans, are pushing back against Trump big time. And I'll go out in a limb, Bill. I don't think it's going to get, I don't, I, they're talking about producing enough votes to override the president. And that takes, I believe, two-thirds. So he, they could literally make him uh, a veto-proof if they have a two-thirds vote. They can override Donald Trump on this. And I think if he proceeds, I think that we will see uh, an override uh, uh, of Trump that will not be uh, overturned. You, you've done an outstanding job of, of characterizing how this is going to impact the auto sector, but that's not the only part that's going to be affected. I mean, this is this is more than just avocados. I mean, uh, American consumers are the ones that are going to get hit by this by with price increases. Absolutely. You go into the grocery store, us or the state, doesn't matter. And yes, there's quite a bit of agricultural products, you know, grapes and oranges and that sort of thing from the states. But people don't realize how much agriculture comes in from the Mexico. And if people are surprised by that, all you have to do is go look up the temperature in January in Mexico versus uh, Oklahoma or versus California. And it's much, much warmer. And guess what? Fruit and vegetables grow when it's hot outside. 
I know you know that, Bill. Yeah. I'm just you're trying to use some humor here. Yeah. That's why we go south to Mexico in January because it's nice and warm. That's why fruit and vegetables grow there, and that's why they ship enormous amounts from Mexico and other Central American countries into Canada and the States. That's why we have all the fresh fruits and vegetables in January and February and March. They are certainly not being grown in Labrador and Newfoundland. So therein lies the problem, and 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 you've talked about this, Judge, with the steel tariffs uh, that uh, that were in play uh, for the longest time, almost a year. Uh, it's a tax on the consumers. It's a tax on small yeah. business, really. It is. That's why I am uh, personally very opposed. Uh, I'm not. I'm not so dogmatic. I, I argue that there's no justification for tariffs. There is. It's a very narrow justification, and it's in the WTO treaty, and that is where the country is cheating by selling, dumping, selling their product below the cost of production in their own country, and that's under the rules of trade. That's legit. What Trump is doing is something that's quite extraordinary in this case. It's never been done before, to my knowledge, in my studies, uh, where he's doing it not for trade reasons. He's not accusing the Mexicans of dumping anything. He's doing it because there's a lot of illegal people coming across the border from through Mexico. They're not even mostly Mexicans anymore. They're coming in from countries south of Mexico. They're transiting through Mexico and crossing the border. Now, I understand. I'm, I'm actually sympathetic to uh, those Americans. My own sister lives in Arizona, and she's a, that's called a borderline state because they cross that border from right there. And, and so I'm very sensitive to their sensitivity about illegal uh, migration. But I don't think that you should be using trade uh, uh, tariffs to stop illegal migration. Uh, you know, there are many other tools. Build a bigger wall, put more, uh, put the military on the border. I mean, I'm just throwing out ideas. I'm not advocating them. I'm just saying there's many tools in the arsenal of the government to deal with illegal immigration. And I don't believe, and certainly Mitch McConnell, the leader of the Republicans in the Senate, has said he doesn't believe that using tariffs to address illegal immigration is acceptable or the right way to go. And, and we, get, we easily get caught up in the bombast, too, from the administration when they're talking about this and the characterization. And, and I don't think anybody's saying there isn't a concern about what's going on. But, for instance, the phrase that, that you just used, illegal immigration, if they're coming across the border and applying for a status, that's not illegal. I mean, that's the process. But, yeah. he can't, but Trump characterizes as that illegal because he obviously wants to make these people the bad guys uh yeah. just and, and just as he characterizes and says and they're all bringing in drugs and they're all bringing in yeah. you know child yeah. prostitutes uh we all know that the 85 percent of the illegal narcotics that come into the united states come in through the usual border crossings they don't come across the border like this it's ports okay. of entry you're absolutely right and and i'll put I'll, I'll come at it slightly just a slight different nuance from what you just said and i don't disagree with what you said but the american economy needs these migrants. I've been, I, I, I did a little thing for my bio just for fun uh, a little while over the winter, and I tried to estimate how many times I've gone across the American border in my lifetime, since the time I was a child. And I estimate I've crossed the border 400 times. And, and I've lived there twice on sabbatical in the United States, once in, in for a year in, in Washington, D.C., and once for a year in California in Monterey. And, and, and I've traveled on road trips, not just flying in and out of an airport, road trips to 43 of 50 states. And why I'm telling you this story is that everywhere you go, the hotels are staffed, you know, the cleaning staff and the people that are doing the landscaping and all that, they're, they're, they're Latinos. I mean, the American economy would crash to a halt 
if they didn't have these workers. I mean, agriculture in the Central Valley of San Fr- of uh, California, right behind Monterey, that's the Grapes of Wrath and John Steinbeck. And yep. that, that. You go in there, it's 100% Latinos working those farms. Because Americans, when I say Americans, I mean indigenous Americans, won't work and do the, the labor jobs. And so it, what it suggests to me is that they need to recalibrate their entire immigration policy to decide how many they need and then create a legal entry, a path of entry, to at least have a controlled border, which I think most Americans want, and most Canadians, for that matter, want. We support, we support immigration, but we want controlled immigration, as opposed to uncontrolled immigration. And, and, and he's doing it in a very bull-in-the-china-shop way. I understand why he's doing it. I just think that there's more uh, nuanced ways of achieving his goal. I, I got about a minute left. Uh, my prediction, I want to get your response to this. Uh, Trump is going to delay this. That's what McConnell says. Wait till the end of the month. Don't do it on Monday. Yep. Uh, and by the end of the month, he's going to forget that he even wanted to do it anyway, because he tends to, you know, get, you know, mollified by other objects all of a sudden. He's it, this, this is going to go away because it's it's it, he's going to lose if he does. Bill, I agree with you completely. I think they're going to put it on ice, and uh, no pun intended, because that's the name of their enforcement agency yeah. on immigration. <laughs> but they're going to put this on ice, postpone it, kick it down the road. And uh, in the meantime, I think that the, the uh, Mexico is very sensitive to this, because they are, their economy is even more dependent on the U.S. than we are. And they're going to do a lot more to control the transit immigrants coming across from Guatemala and other countries south of Mexico. So I think it'll work on both sides, kicking it down the road. It'll cool, things will cool down. And, and I think Mexico will start to clamp down a bit more. I'm not saying perfectly, but clamp down more on the people using Mexico as their transit to get to the States. Ian Lee, thanks as always. Great talking with you again today. My pleasure. Thanks very much, Bill. Ian Lee from the Sparks School of Business at Carleton University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.